Hey everybody, this is Krista Stilwell, Communications Assistant at LFCN. Thanks for listening to the podcast. It's a glimpse into the life of our church. We are ordinary people being transformed into passionate followers of Jesus who join with God in the remaking of all things. We pray that what you hear is a blessing and helps you join God today. If our church can help you and serve you in any way, please drop us a line at 765-447-7655. Enjoy the sermon. On behalf of First Church of the Nazarene, I do want to extend a welcome to you. We are really glad to join with you this morning. We're really glad that you've chosen to worship with us. And uh, you've, you've picked a really good week to be here. Uh, we're going to begin a new sermon series for the next four weeks, and I just want to take a little bit of a moment to introduce it. If you'll notice on your uh, program that was distributed to you this morning, Uh, The art for our new sermon series is there, and it's called Shadows. And so here's what we want to do in this sermon series. All of us have a side to us that we filter out, and we don't love people to see. Those things, those thoughts, those moments, those actions of our heart and of our life that would never make their way to Snapchat or Instagram or Facebook the stuff that we don't even love for the closest person to us on earth to be able to see. We don't love our spouse to know it, notice it, for our children to notice it. The stuff that we try to keep hidden in the shadows. And one of the things that I consistently hear from people as we're journeying to become like Jesus is that sometimes they feel as if this, this journey towards Jesus isn't for them Because they have these things that remain in their shadows. And what I always try to point out is that Scripture, from beginning to end, is the story of people who have a shadow side. There's some shadowy characters in the Bible. And Scripture consistently reveals that God is drawn towards people who have some things in their life that need to be exposed. So for the next four weeks, we're going to kind of uh, take a look at some of the more shadowy characters in the Bible. And I think what we'll realize is this. We relate to them a little bit more than we'd like to, first of all. And secondly, I think what we'll come to understand is that God's mission of redeeming the world and setting his people right, if it can include people like that, it can certainly include people like us. And so today, we start in Genesis chapter 4 by remembering and retelling the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel from Genesis chapter 4. And Genesis chapter 4 tells the entirety of this story. I'm going to pick up the story in verse 3, and we'll read through verse 7. Genesis chapter 4, if you have your Bible, turn there. If not, the words will be on the screen, beginning with verse 3. God's word says this this morning. 
Sometime later, Cain presented an offering to the Lord from the land's crops, while Abel presented his flock's oldest offspring with their fat. And the Lord looked favorably on Abel and his sacrifice, but didn't look favorably on Cain and his sacrifice. Cain became very angry and looked resentful. And the Lord noticed this and asked Cain, Why are you angry? And why do you look so resentful? Listen, if you do the right thing, won't you be accepted? But if you don't do the right thing, Sin will be waiting at the door, ready to strike. It will entice you, but you must rule over it. This is God's word for us this morning. In Shakespeare's play, Othello, maybe you had to read it in high school, maybe you read it in some literature class in college that you just had to get through. In Shakespeare's play, Othello, the villain Diego... He says of the character that he tries to kill. I mean, he hates this character. And he says this about him. He hath a beauty in his life that makes me ugly. He hath a beauty in his life that makes me ugly. The reason that he didn't like this person is because there was such goodness and beauty in this other's person life that it made him feel kind of ugly. Kind of ugly. And that's just such a true line. I mean, the truth is, we all have people like that in our life. We have people like that. We have people who are so intelligent that they just make us feel kind of dumb. We have people in our life who are, like, have such good character, like not a bad bone in their body, that it makes us feel like kind of evil. We have people in our life who are so funny, like so funny, and every time there's a social occasion, they're, they're telling jokes, and everybody's laughing at their jokes, and when you muster up the courage to tell a joke, you kind of get like the courtesy laugh. And then they look back at the other person like, come on, tell us some more jokes. People who are so funny, it makes us feel kind of lame. We have people in our life who have so much money that it makes us feel kind of poor. There's a name for all of this. It's called envy. Envy. And envy goes way back. Socrates, or Socrates, for all of you Bill and Ted's excellent adventure fans, Socrates called envy the ulcer of the soul. And Shakespeare, at another point, referred to envy by using the phrase green-eyed jealousy. And that phrase, green-eyed jealousy, actually helps us to understand what is happening at the root of envy. 
Because the Greek word, the ancient Greek word for the word envy is this word, pathanos. Pathanos. It's where we get our word ophthalmology. They share the same common root, and it literally means evil eye. So at the root of envy is us seeing other people who have stuff or have skills that we don't have, and then we begin to adjust our eye set to the things that we don't have that they have, and we begin to see them and only them, and pretty soon we are blind to the truth. We imagine that person with our mind's eye through the lens of envy, and we put them up on this pedestal, and we think of them, their life is so great, and they're so fantastic, and look at them, aren't they so perfect? And then we turn to ourselves, and we feel inferior and overshadowed. And that is because envy attacks the place in our life where we feel like we're lacking. It begins in the eyes, moves to the heart, and begins to go through our entire body. Proverbs 14.30 describes it perfectly. The proverb says this, A heart of peace gives life to the body. But envy rots the bones. A heart of peace gives life. Envy rots the bones. And that is exactly what was happening with Cain in our story. And so we read this passage of Scripture. If you're not familiar, Cain and Abel are brothers. They are sons of Adam and Eve. And what's happening in this story of Cain and Abel is just so subtle. It's so subtle, it's brilliant. It's so subtle that oftentimes we miss exactly what's going on. We, 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 we struggle to see the nuance. It's almost like when we read this story that we have to pay as much attention to what the writer of the book of Genesis does not say versus what is said in this story. Because what is not mentioned is just as important as what is mentioned. And the story tells us that Cain and his brother Abel were both bringing an offering to God. All right, so Cain is a farmer, works the land, raises crops. Abel is a rancher and has lots of lambs and sheep. And both of them want to worship God And so they both want to bring an offering to God. And sometimes, what's very clear throughout Scripture is that when you go to bring an offering to God, you give to God what is in your hands. You never go to God empty-handed. You always bring something as an act of worship, an offering to God. And that's what they were doing. Cain grabbed some of his fruits and vegetables, and Abel brought with him a lamb. And the story does not say, the story does not say Cain was this awful, really wicked person. But his brother Abel was like the picture of perfection. He was a saint. It doesn't say that. 
The story does not say that the night before they were going to go bring this offering to God that Cain was out a little bit too late with his buddies and it got a little bit rowdy and they were shotgunning beers and then he woke up the next morning terribly hungover and he just grabbed whatever fruit he could find and he's made his way to go give an offering to God. That is not at all what the story says. It doesn't say that. It says Cain went out, got an offering from his fields, And Abel brought the firstborn from his flock. But then the story says this. They offered it to God. And God had regard for Abel's offering. He accepted Abel's offering, but not Cain's. And the story doesn't tell us why. I mean, what's up with that? Does God... I mean, this is my interpretation. Is it that God likes meat and not vegetables? Can I get an amen? Whatever it is, God has regard for Cain and his offering. No regard at all. But God had all the regard for Abel and his offering. So kind of let me dispel a myth about kind of how this happens, right? So in our minds, what we think while we're reading the story is we're prone to think that Cain comes with like into, into make an offering to God with his vegetables, and Abel comes to make an offering to God with his lamb, and they both offer them to God, and, and Cain says to God, God, here, here is an offering to you, and Abel says to God, God, here's an offering to you, and God says of Cain's offering, nope, and God says of Abel's offering, Yes. We think there's like that immediate feedback. But that's not really how it worked. It's more subtle. So when they make this offering and they leave it there and they go back home, how does Cain know that God accepted Abel's offering but God didn't accept him? Because the way that that whole offering worked, there wasn't fire that fell down and consumed Abel's. That would be like God's way of saying, yes, I accept it, while Cain's just kind of sat there and wasn't barbecued. That's not how it went. It wasn't like there was a voice from heaven that said of Abel, yes, this is, this, this is a great offering, and Cain, what a terror. None of that happened. How is it that Cain knew God accepted my brother's offering, but he didn't accept mine. And that's where Cain's heart begins to be exposed. Because the only way he would have known is if Abel begins to receive blessings from God in a tangible form in his life, and Cain wasn't receiving any of those. The only way he would have known is is if something was happening in Abel's life that was a pure gift from God and nothing was happening in his own life. Something was happening in his brother that he could see. His brother had found favor with God. His brother was receiving blessing from God. He knew his brother's offering was accepted while his was not. I mean, maybe it was as simple as like Abel was asked to head up that project 
Well, Cain was way more qualified for it. He wasn't asked. He was the firstborn. After all, he should have been the first one chosen, but he wasn't. I mean, maybe it was that Abel married that girl that was like way out of his league, maybe the one that Cain had been crushing on for a little bit. Maybe it was that Abel was about to have a second child, and Cain and his wife were really struggling to have children. Maybe Abel was the one that his dad went to and said, hey, when I die, I want to pass on the family business to you, while Cain knew it should, should have been him. Maybe it was something like that. We don't know what it is. But we do know that envy had set in to Cain's life. And he saw his brother being blessed by God. And he became envious because Abel was getting everything that he wanted and he wasn't getting it. And this is how envy works. Envy begins by comparing ourselves to other people. In fact, early childhood experts have helped us to understand that as young as seven years old, we start to see the similarities and the differences in the people that surround us. And noticing similarities and noticing differences is the breeding ground, it's the beginning for envy to take shape in our life. And pretty soon, envy makes us want what those other people who are similar or different than us have. We want their possessions, or we want their character traits, we want their status, we want their car, we want their paycheck, we want their house. Envy starts to creep in. It starts to creep in as simply as when we ride in somebody else's car. It starts to set in when we show up at someone else's house. It starts to, sh- to, to set in when we watch somebody else's television screen, and it's way bigger than ours. Or we see their pictures of where they went on vacation. And it's not just possessions or stuff that envy draws us to. It's also characteristics. You know, that person's really smart. I wish I could be like that. Or that person's super pretty. I wish I could be like that. Or they're so handsome or they're athletic or they're so thin. We want that. But envy doesn't stop there. Envy grows deeper. It's like a cancer that spreads throughout the body. And it's not just, I want what you have. It's also, I want you to envy me. There's this great line from Mark Twain. There's this great line from Mark Twain. Mark Twain says this, A man will do many things to get himself loved, but he will do all things to get himself envied. And that is so true. And it doesn't even stop there. It doesn't stop with, I want you to envy me. When envy totally consumes us and it's in its final stage, we secretly begin to think of the person that we're envious of. I really want you to fail. And I really want you to experience pain. Because envy has taken such a root in our life that there's this deep resentment that begins to grow. We start to gossip about that person. We start to complain about them. We chip away at their character. We say things like, yeah, man, he's, he is super athletic, but 
he is really, really dumb. Or, yeah, it's true, he does have a great job and he makes a lot of money, but his dad got that for him. Or we say things like, yeah, she is really, really pretty. But as pretty as she is on the outside, she's just as ugly inside. Or, yeah, she'd be really fun to hang around with if she wouldn't talk so much. We say these things when envy takes over. In fact, there's this brilliant, 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 brilliant study. The, the findings were published in academic journals. I came, I came to, to, to notice it through a tweet that showed up on my Twitter feed that linked to a New York Times article that summarized the findings from the National Institute of Radiological Sciences. They performed this massive study, and they were studying how envy actually affects our brain. And they discovered that when their patients admitted to having envy, that their brain actually felt the physical sensation of pain. And the more that they envied, the more that the pain nodes in their brain would flare up. And then they discovered that when the participants began to imagine something bad happening to the person that they envied, the pleasure centers in their brain started to fire. And the people who felt the greatest envy had the most pleasure when they imagined something bad happening to the person they envied which is like scientific explanation of what the story of Cain and Abel is all about. So Cain and Abel make an offering to God, and Abel's offering was accepted, and Cain's wasn't recognized. And Abel receives this blessing that Cain really wants, and Cain begins to be envious of his brother, and he begins to head down this path of destruction. And the beautiful part of this story is that God notices it and tries to intervene. In Genesis 4, verse 6, we just read this morning, the Lord said to Cain, hey, what's up? Why are you so angry? Why do you look so resentful? If you do the right thing, Cain, everything will be cool. You'll be accepted. But if you don't do anything... Sin will be waiting at the door. Some translations say sin will be crouching at the door, ready to strike. It will entice you, but you must rule over it. And Cain is wrecked by this now. He's wrecked by envy. And he's going through this really dark place. And God sees it. He notices it in his physical demeanor. So God approaches him. What's up? Why are you so angry? What's wrong? Why are these things building in your heart? And God asks him, what's wrong? And we know what's wrong. Like if God were to ask us what was wrong in those moments, we would say things like this. God, listen, I've given you my money. God, I've given you my marriage. I've given my life to you. And God, here's what's wrong. I sacrificed all of these things as an act of worship to you, and other people get what I want, and I don't. And I just get trials and tests 
You never give me what I want, God. I give you these things. I sacrifice these things to you. And everybody else gets what they want, but I never get what I want. I give you my stuff. I give you the desires of my heart. Isn't that how this is supposed to work, God? And don't you have a role to play in this? That's where Cain is at. That's where he's at. And Cain did what he was supposed to do. He showed up and he gave an offering to God, and God didn't recognize it. And there are two reasons in our life to ever give God an offering. Whether that offering is money or time or your marriage or your relationships or your sexuality or your life, whatever it is, there are two reasons that we give God an offering. And the first is we give that offering to God as a response for who he is. And so we recognize, God, you have given me so much. You've given so much to me that it's like these things aren't even mine. I mean, you've given these to me. You've made my hands to work to make the money that I do, my brain to function, to crunch the numbers that I do for the company that I work for. You have done it, God. So here, it's all yours. It's a response. The second reason we give an offering to God is in order to get what we want. So we say things like, hey, God, I'll give you an hour and a half once a week for like 36 Sundays a year. An hour and a half once a week, 36 times a year. But, God, I better go to heaven. Or, God, I'll give you a little bit of my money, but you better give me even more money back in return. It's one of the church's greatest fundraising tricks. Um, They say to you, we say to you, listen, if you... If you give us this amount, God will give you so much more in return. And there's some basis of truth in that. You cannot outgive God, but our motivation to give to God is never what we'll get in return. There are two reasons. Two reasons we give to God. We give an offering to God. We sacrifice for God. One is out of response. And the second is so that we can get some stuff back. And what was the posture of Cain's heart in this story? It was the second. That was Cain. He was giving, making this offering to God so that he could get something back in return. That was Cain. But let's be honest. That's also us. A lot of times, that's also us. And so when Cain gave an offering to God but didn't get back from God what he expected, when he didn't get blessed like his brother did, he's angry. He's bitter. Cain offered his grain and fruit. Abel offered his lamb. God chose his, but not Cain's. And pretty soon he began to be discontent with his lot in life, Envy sets in, and so God comes to him and says, what's up? Why are you so angry? Sin is crouching at the door, Cain. Like, I know you can't see it. It's hiding outside of the door. I know you can't see it, but it wants to destroy you. It wants to take over your life. But Cain, you can master it. And Cain's anger grows 
He was expecting God to change in order to accept his sacrifice and accommodate him, and instead of him having to change in order to accommodate God. God, you want this other thing? You're getting this? Why won't you bless me? Just accept it. God, I gave you some of my stuff. Just accept it. But God didn't want his stuff. He wanted the posture of his heart. So God says to him, if you do the right thing, won't you be accepted? And that's the tricky thing, right? Cain knows the right thing to do. He knows how to make it right. He knows what to offer to God and the posture of his heart in which he should make that offering. He knows what God wants. He wants an offering of first fruits, of pure motives, as a response to his goodness. And God comes to him and even gives him a second chance. Cain, do the right thing. If you do the right thing, everything is cool. This will immediately be over with. It will be the end of your envy, the end of your anger, the end of that sense of discontentment. Do the right thing. But Cain couldn't do it. He was so far down that path of envy that he was already in his heart plotting to kill the thing that was killing him inside. Now, for almost all of us, I mean, I guess you never know, but for almost all of us, my guess is that our lives will, not, will never become so consumed with envy of another person that we will take like motive in our heart to end the life of that other person. My, my guess is, I really hope that that would never happen. But I also know that almost all of us, almost all of us at this very moment are harboring feelings, are giving space to sin in our lives that wants to take over and wants to destroy us. And it might not end with us causing harm or pain upon that other person, but it probably will end with us causing harm and pain in our life or in the lives of those closest to us. We'll take it out and we'll lash out. This spirit of discontentment will rise up within us. Pretty soon we'll find ourselves to be in a negative place and in a really difficult state. And the trick to allowing God to redirect our affection and our heart and to remove that spirit of envy within us is to recognize the truth of this story is true also in our lives. God continues to call out to us, what's up? What's wrong? Why are you so bothered? God continues to give us space by saying to us, you have opportunity to do the right thing. Just do the right thing and all of this will be settled. It will all go away. We have those moments and we have those opportunities. God is not looking down upon us in a spirit of judgment 
or condemnation and saying to us, how awful are you? How terrible of a person you are. That's evil within us that's telling us those things. God comes to someone who's about to kill his brother, and God comes to him and says, come on, man, all of this can be changed in just a moment's notice. And if God's posture in that moment towards Cain is like that, God's posture in the moment of our hearts where we're envious, so envious that anger and hatred begins to take residence within us and we want to smush those things down into the shadows, but when we push them down into the shadows, they take even deeper root and spreads throughout our body. God's posture towards us is we can be done with this. We can be done with this. Let's do the right thing. And it'll all, it'll all be removed. And what is that right thing? You know what? I think in that moment, if God said to Cain, hey man, why are you so angry? Just like do the right thing. I wonder what would have happened if Cain would have grabbed some more of his grain that he was about to take to market to make some money. And in a moment of clarity, if he would have said, you know what, you are so right. All of this stuff might be happening in my brother Abel's life and none of it is happening in mine. But look at what I'm holding in my hands. A tangible reminder of your blessings. You're so right, God. You are so good to me and you've given so much to me. Here, all of it, it's yours. I wonder in that moment what would have happened. I know his heart would have been set right with God. And I wonder out of that if he wouldn't have found the courage and the strength to go to his brother Abel and to say, you know what, I'll, I'll, flat out, I will be honest with you. Everything that's happening in your life I want to happen in mine. And I got to come clean with you. That was really tough for a stretch of time. But Abel, I am so happy for you. I rejoice alongside you. And I celebrate with you. I, I wonder what would have happened. It's the same way that I wonder for many of us. When we show up at that place... And there's that person again. Or when we see that photo on our social media feed. Or when we look at our paycheck and we compare it. I wonder what would happen if instead of dwelling in that moment of everything that they have that we don't have, if instead we would remember, God, I got some stuff in my hands. And you gave it to me. And the truth is, I don't even deserve this little stuff that I have. But you're so good to me. So here it is. It's yours. And I wonder, you know, if you know him really well, that's cool. You know, make it right. But if not, instead of a word of curse or a snide comment, or some text messages about that person at their expense. I wonder instead if we spoke words of blessing. Man, that is really cool. I see what's happened in your life. How awesome. I'm so happy for you. 
I wonder what would happen in our hearts. Could it be that we would be so set right with God that we would be so set right with our fellow brothers and sisters that someone would say of us what the, what the Proverbs writer said, a heart of peace brings life. And that person is life-giving.